Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSillaCast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Saturday, December 7th, 2019, and this is show number 761. Adam Angst, veteran author of Tidbits for the last 29 years, inventor of internet advertising, and someone who dresses appropriately for the weather, joins us for this week's episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. Adam explains the fascinating results that IBM has reported since they first decided to give their employees the choice of whether to use a Mac or Windows. I'm afraid that this discussion will cement any ever so slight Apple bias you may have already had because the statistically significant correlation between Mac usage and employee success is simply startling. I hung out with Adam a bunch at MacTech, and I was instantly comfortable with his sense of humor. We laugh during this interview, he shares tips, and we basically had a simply wonderful time together. Adam actually asked to be on the show, which is fantastic, and I definitely plan on having him back. Luckily, he writes a lot, and I could just pick a topic and let him go at it. You can find this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond Light in your podcatcher of choice, or you can listen right over at podfeet.com. This month on Screencast Online, I created a video tutorial on how to use the free and open source diagram tool, Draw.io. I first told you about Draw.io in 2016, and it is still my go-to app for my diagramming needs. You may have seen my live show setup diagram where I put screenshots of all my app settings and I embedded images of my hardware. All of that I created in Draw.io. When Steve and I went to India with Don and Raleigh and more, I was really struggling how to understand the crazy itinerary that we had for that trip, so I diagrammed out the entire trip in Draw.io, and I did a blog post on that too. Those are just a couple examples of how I use Draw.io. I thought it was pr- I was pretty good at Draw.io from years of use, but you never really learn a tool until you have to teach others to use it. For example, I had completely missed the memo that Draw.io now has dedicated desktop apps for the Mac, Windows, Linux, and even Chrome OS. I used the dedicated app for the video, and it was way better than using it through Chrome, and way, way, way better than trying to use it in Safari. I learned more about how to use layers, how to create my own templates, more about working with shapes and connectors, and even more about working with text and diagramming. I even figured out why they can give away such a great tool. And no, they don't sell your data. In fact, they don't even store your data. Now, sometimes creating video tutorials is a slog because the app misbehaves or it's hard to learn or it doesn't turn out to be as good as I'd hoped it would be when I started. Draw.io was the exact opposite. This was probably the easiest video tutorial I've made to date because everything worked and everything worked well. Don writes a newsletter when new episodes come out, and I'd like to read to you what he wrote about it. He is usually not this excited about the tools I review. Here's what he wrote in the newsletter. Whilst reviewing and redoing the Screencast Online post-production processes, I've been trying all sorts of diagrammatic tools to simplify and speed up the process of creating flowcharts. I've used several of the typical tools and even some mind mapping ones, but the learning curve on all of them is just a bit too long and they don't seem to meld themselves to what I need to do easily. Then Allison Sheridan rocks up with Draw.io for this week's Screencast Online tutorial. Wonderful. Draw.io is a fully featured and amazingly competent drawing tool optimized for creating flow diagrams, but capable of much, much more. Even better, it's free and open source. Now I'll be able to take the outlines I ended up creating and translating them into proper workflow process diagrams. 
Well, I got a big kick out of him uh, actually deciding to use the tool after learning how to use it from me. I embedded the teaser video for this tutorial over on podfeet.com in a blog post, but you can also go to screencastonline.com and you can watch the teaser there. You can get a free seven-day trial and watch this video and all of the back catalog. But I don't think you should go do it because if you do, you'll really want to get a Screencast Online subscription after that and then you'll be learning everything and that'll be terrible. Screencastonline.com Shortly after I got my electric vehicle, I was driving past the gas station near my house and I realized I will never go there again. I know that's obvious that I don't need to put gas in my car, but it was still kind of a shock to the system to not have to do something you've done, you know, once or twice a week for literally 45 years. I've said ever since I got this car that driving it is not like driving a different model of car. It feels like driving some completely new category of vehicle. It's almost as dramatic as the difference between driving a car and driving a boat. When I first started thinking about all the parts I no longer have in my car, it kind of illustrates why it feels so very different. I'm sure a lot of what I'm going to talk about is representative of all purely electric vehicles, but I don't pretend to have researched anything but the Tesla Model 3. The overarching difference between my car and an internal combustion engine car is that the Model 3 doesn't have an engine at all. It's quite shocking to pop the hood, or bonnet as Bart would say, of the car and see, instead of seeing an engine, there's an extra trunk. Between the front trunk and the bottom glass of the windshield, there's a plastic cover with one single fluid container, the windshield wiper fluid reservoir. Once you realize there are no other fluids to fill, you realize there's no oil in this car to speak of. Oil is used to lubricate gears, but there are no gears. There's no gears, you don't need to change gears. So there's no clutch, as in a manual transmission car, and no torque converter, as you would have in an automatic transmission, transmission vehicle. Well, let's just get it out of the way. There's no transmission at all in Tesla electric vehicles. When you start an ICE vehicle, that's what EV people call an internal combustion engine vehicle. Well, anyway, when you start an ICE vehicle, you use the starter. I don't have one of those, nor do I have an ignition switch. The spark plugs on an ICE car fire, which drives the pistons, which turn the motor. Well, I do have a motor. In fact, on my model, I actually have two. I don't have pistons, so I don't have spark plugs to fire. The pistons in an ICE vehicle get converted into rotational motion by the, crank, the crankshaft. So I don't have one of those either. The rotation of the crankshaft has to be very carefully synchronized to the camshaft, or the engine's valves won't open and close at the proper time during each stroke of the pistons on their cylinders. This synchronization is in part controlled by a timing belt. Well, timing belts are usually made of rubber and eventually wear down or disintegrate, so the timing belt has to be replaced from time to time. No spark plugs, no pistons, no crankshaft means no timing belt. I remember when I had my 1976 Civic, I had the valve guide seals go bad. That is a whole sordid tale of how, at only 20 years old, I fought with a Honda dealer who tried repeatedly to cheat me. They did not achieve their goal. Anyway, I don't have valves, so I don't have valve guides, so I don't have valve guide seals to go bad. Now, obviously, I don't have a gas tank, but that also means I don't have a fuel pump or fuel injectors. I had those go bad on a car also a very long time ago. I also got a hole in a radiator once. I remember the place I got it fixed at was called Hosey's Radiator, which I thought was a fun name. But, you know, an electric vehicle doesn't have an engine to cool. So there's no radiator either. An engine is cooled by pumping fluid through the engine while it's running. 
That's the job of the water pump, which is driven by yet another belt connected to the crankshaft we've been talking about. No engine means no, means no need for fluid to cool it, which means no water pump and yet another belt my car doesn't have. Back in that long-sorted tale of the Honda dealer trying to cheat me when I was young, and it turned out to be the valve guide seals, they tried to convince me that it was a bad head gasket. They said it was under a warranty recall and that they could pull the head to see if it was bad. If it was bad, they'd replace it under the recall, but if it was good, they would charge me for the labor. That was right around the time I figured out that they were thieves, because that's not how recalls work. Anyway, since I don't have an engine, I don't have a cylinder head, so I don't have a head gasket for thieves to lie to me about. When you look at the back of my car, it kind of looks like it's missing something. There's just a bumper and nothing hanging below it. That's because it has no muffler. No holes can get in a muffler that you don't have. Because ice engines contribute a fair amount to pollution, the catalytic converter was invented. This nifty device removes carbon monoxide, hydrocarbons, and other harmful chemicals from exhaust emissions. They do this magic using very expensive rare earth metals such as palladium that costs more per ounce than gold. Since EVs produce zero emissions, they don't have catalytic converters either. This also means there's no need to ever go get an emissions check to get your registration renewed. As I started thinking through all of the things in my car that I don't have anymore, I could hear my father with one of his famous sayings, everyone goes when the whistle blows, you know. This was his way of pointing out single point failure. If one thing fails and takes everything down, that might not be a good thing. If the giant battery that runs the motors in my car fails, would that bring everything else down? Would I be able to get out of the car? Would my airbags deploy? Would my seatbelts tighten as I approached a crash? Would the autopilot cease to work? Could I even turn on the emergency lights as I sat on the side of the road? Let's talk this one through. I do have the giant battery that actually makes the motors go, as I explained. But as I started researching for this article, I found evidence that said my car also has a 12-volt battery, just like an ICE car. Unlike an ICE vehicle, I don't have an alternator driven by the engine. Instead, the 12-volt battery is charged by the giant battery pack in the car. Now, remember I said when I opened my front hood, all I see is this plastic cover and the place to fill the wiper fluid? It turns out that plastic cover can come off. It just kind of pops off, and you get a few more things to look at. But oddly, you're not supposed to have to mess with them. That's where the 12-volt battery is hidden. At teslatap.com, there's an article about the battery that set my, eye, my mind at ease about all of the emergency needs I described above. Everything I was worried about is controlled by that 12-volt battery. So don't worry, Dad. My blinkers and airbags and windows will all work even if the giant battery goes kaput. I mentioned not having a water pump or a radiator, but the Teslas do have battery coolant. There's got to be an electric pump buried in there somewhere to move the coolant around as well. You can see the filler cap for the coolant under that plastic cover in the front trunk, but they tell you to never, ever, ever open that filler cap to check it. The manual says you'll get a warning indicator if it ever has a problem, but you shouldn't expect to have to worry your pretty little head about it for the life of the vehicle. Like an ICE vehicle, Teslas do have hydraulic brakes. That means there's a chamber for the brake fluid. Look at this. They say, don't touch that one either. They say, don't even top it off, that you only need to mess with it if it ever gets contaminants in it. They point out that opening it is the quickest way to get contaminants in it. Speaking of brakes, the brake pads themselves will last way longer than in an ICE car. It's not like they're made of some magic material, though. It's because you don't actually need to use them very often. 
Part of what makes this car feel like a different beast than anything I've ever driven is that when you let off the accelerator, the car's regenerative braking kicks in and automatically slows the car down and charges the battery with that energy. If you've ever driven a golf cart or a go-kart, it's kind of like that. For stop-and-go driving, you feather the accelerator instead of jumping back and forth between the accelerator and the brakes. Now, Tesla's Get Over the Air updates pretty often, and there was a recent update that changed even more how much we need to use the brakes. Before I explain the change, I need there's a term I need to describe. When you come to a stop in a Tesla, if you press firmly on the brake, you'll see an H inside of double parentheses. This means hold. In hold, you can take your foot off of the brake and the car won't roll. It makes waiting at lights more restful and I think safer. How many times have you been at a light, bored, looking around, and then for some reason your brain tells you to lift your foot? In a nice vehicle, your car will roll forward, and that's actually how I got rear-ended when my car was brand new. In the Tesla, you have to actively participate in rolling forward if you use the hold mode. The new software update took hold to a whole new level. In the settings for driving, there's a section for the stopping mode where you choose between creep, and that behaves like an ice vehicle. I don't know why you would choose that. Roll, which slows gently but keeps rolling when you let off the accelerator, and hold. With stopping set to hold, when you let off the accelerator, the car comes to a complete stop without you touching the brakes at all. It's super weird at first because the car slows down so much when you let off the pedal. I did an experiment this week where I drove from my house down to the beach, which is about two miles, backed into a parking place, parked for my run, pulled out of the parking place after my run, went to Starbucks, parked again, pulled out, drove home and into my garage, all without ever applying the brake to slow down or stop. It was amazing. So while I do have brake pads and I have hydraulic brakes, I find myself wondering, these are probably going to last a really long time. A local place where I got a tire fixed recently, not for my car, told me that they'd gotten to their very first brake pad replacement on a Tesla. It was a Model S and it had 75,000 miles on it, and the Tesla owner said it was his first replacement experience too. Now, Steve pointed out that this uh, way to brake uh, using this regenerative braking is a safety feature as well, and I think I may have mentioned that before. If you're hurtling down the highway at 65 miles an hour and you need to stop suddenly, in a traditional car, the time from when you take your foot off the pedal till you get to the brakes, the car's momentum is carrying it at nearly the speed you were originally going. With the Tesla, without any of the collision avoidance features, which of course would help, as soon as you lift your foot off the pedal, you're starting to decelerate dramatically. It could mean that split-second difference that you need. Now, theoretically, if there aren't as many parts, and especially moving parts in a car, then the chance of requiring repair should go down. Now, there's an awful lot of sensors on this car, but, you know, ICE cars have a lot of cool electronics, too, for things like collision avoidance. With fewer parts, the required preventative maintenance on a Tesla is really, really minimal. From the Tesla manual, which you can look at at tesla.com if you're curious, here is the entire recommended maintenance for the Model 3. First, replace cabin air filter every two years. Check your tires every 10 to 12,000 miles. You know, rotate balance align is needed. Check for brake fluid contamination every two years. Now, they did say I shouldn't do that myself, but I think you're supposed to take it in. So it's just check it. Replace the desiccant in the air conditioning every six years. Now, how am I going to remember to do something that infrequent? I'll put it in my calendar, I guess. Now, if you're in a cold weather region, not, uh, I'm not, you need to clean and lubricate the brake calipers every 12 months or 12,500 miles. 
That is the entire extent of the recommended maintenance for six, eight years of your car. Beyond that, the Tesla Model 3 has a limited warranty of four years or 50,000 miles, whichever comes first. Now, the big ticket items on a Tesla are the battery and drive unit, and they come with an extended warranty period. They're covered on the Model 3 for eight years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. Or if you have a long-range battery like mine, it's 120,000 miles. Within that period, the the battery is warranted with a minimum of 70% of its original capacity. Now, my buddy Ron, who has a Tesla Model S and studies all this stuff, he's on his second Model S, he says that they've been watching the uh, reduction in battery capacity of these uh, Tesla cars, and they're not dropping nearly as much as Tesla thought they might. And that's why the warranty is down to 70%. And uh, he said that they're really seeing much, much less degradation than they expected. So that's kind of cool. Now, I know this car costs a grip, as Rob Dunwood would say, so it's not like I can claim great savings because of reduced maintenance and probable failures due to fewer mechanical components, but I thought it was an interesting exercise to walk through all of the parts the car simply doesn't have. After Frank's fabulous pledge break last week, it's hard to come up with something more clever to say than he did. Instead, I'm going to thank Christoph Trush for his generous donation through PayPal. He has a recurring event in his calendar that reminds him to send me a donation every quarter. He calls it his Patreon substitute. I think it's a terrific way to help the NoSillaCast and all the other shows keep going. If you'd like to make a recurring calendar event called Patreon Substitute, just enter the URL podfeet.com slash Patreon in the event and you'll always know how to donate. Thank you, Christoph, for your generosity. Before we get into the next segment, I wanted to ask you if you noticed anything different about the show this week. Do I look thinner, smarter? (laughs) No, starting with this episode and the chit-chat across the pond with Adam, I have doubled the bitrate of the audio from 64 kilobits per second to 128 kilobits per second. I set it to 64 back in, what was it, 1959 when I started the show, back when people had severely limited bandwidth. Download speeds and limits have changed a lot since then. Now, most of the time I'm working on uh, uh, recording and editing the show, I'm listening to an uncompressed version of the audio. So when I hear the final MP3, it sounds really crunchy. I decided it was finally time to take the leap to 128 kilobits per second. Of course, I did not make this change without polling the live show listeners, and the response was 100% in favor of doubling the bitrate. So blame them if you get uh, if your bandwidth is limited. Anyway, maybe in another 14 years or so, I'll double it again. I hope you like the change, and I hope your ears are happier. Now, let's get back to the show. I've asked uh, Ron Birch, internationally renowned author of the book Resilient Space Designs, to sh- uh, to join us on the show tonight. How are you doing today, Ron? Just fine, Allison. <laughs> but I didn't ask you to come on uh, re- to talk about your new book, uh, even though David Roth likes a good equation more than anybody. I actually I actually asked Ron to come in to retell a story he told, uh, I think it was last Friday night. Uh, Ron comes over on Friday night. Steve and Ron and I have some wine. We have some pizza. We watch a movie. This week, uh, as soon as I opened the door, Ron said, hey, do you still have your ScanSnap scanner? And I said, no, I get rid of it because the drivers were 32-bit and I wasn't going to be able to use it anymore when I went to Catalina. That's the setup, right, Ron? That's it. And you said, well, I had a uh, a similar experience, but I found a better solution. Why don't, you, why don't you tell us what you did? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, this isn't obviously the first time uh, as a loyal Mac head that I've run into the problem of up- upgrading uh, the OS and having some of my 
peripherals uh, bite the big one basically because the uh, the drivers or the software wasn't compatible and whoever it was that built the scanner or the or the printer or whatever doesn't want to do any more development. Yeah. And so I, I kind of, you know, I knew ahead of time that this was going to be a problem because Fujitsu was pretty open about the fact that they weren't going to do anything about the uh, the older software. So yeah, no, I, it was only a couple of the models, right? I mean, we, I had the thirteen hundred M, and you had the fifteen hundred M, but they wanted uh, us to buy new new ones, right? Basically, yeah. I mean, they they say it's not worth their while, and so um, you know they let the old stuff go. And the problem I had was that I've been phenomenally happy with this the scanner. Uh, it's a duplex uh, sheet feeder. And uh, it's in very good condition. I, I haven't overused it, and I, I wasn't looking forward to to replacing it. So uh, sometimes I, it's not the money either, right? It's just this is perfectly fine. Exactly, you know. And it's not even the hassle nowadays with Amazon or whatever. But it's just the idea that everything was working well, and then it broke. And it's it's not because of hardware. And I'm a hardware guy. It's because the software, you know, you know that some high school kid, if they knew what they were doing, could probably fix this in, you know, two hours, right? Right. Do the do the development on the software, you mean? Yeah. 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 You know, it's probably a hundred lines of code or something. Yeah. So uh, so anyway, I uh I thought to myself, you know, occasionally uh there are some third party apps or drivers or whatever that are running around out there or you know, occasionally you find someone who's really clever and they figure to work around. So I did what every every good person would do nowadays, and I Googled the heck out of it. <laughs> and uh, lo and behold, I came across a, a third-party app, which amazingly uh, has been out there for quite a while. It's called ViewScan, and probably some of your listeners already know about it, but I didn't. I'm almost and- positive nobody has ever reviewed this software on the NoSilicast. <laughs> I, I should do a search because somebody's yelling into their uh, their phone right now if they have. But it, ViewScan, like you said, it's been around forever. Yeah, they're at ViewScan 9. And uh, anyway, the thing that was interesting to me was that they claimed that over the years, they now support over 150 different devices, mostly scanners, uh, or, you know, combo uh, printer scanners, what have you. And uh, they claim that it's very plug and play, you know, which, of course, everybody does. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I looked at it. There were there were two versions of it. One is kind of the stripped down version. And uh, then they have one that's a little bit more capable and has uh, a bunch more features. The, the stripped down version is about thirty nine dollars and the other one's about, I think, uh, ninety nine dollars. And for me, the biggest difference is that the, the higher end one has the uh, OCR capability. So OCR, again, is? Optical character recognition. So if you scan, for example, a text file or uh, you know something that would have been a PDF or it gets converted into a PDF, it'll recover uh, and turn it into a, a scannable, uh, searchable PDF. Okay, great. So uh, so anyway, I, I saw this and they, they uh, have a nice website and, and the whole nine yards and they allow uh, you to do a, a demo. And so I downloaded it, uh, plugged it in, and lo and behold, it immediately recognized not only my Fujitsu, but also my HP uh, printer combo. Uh, And uh, everything seemed to be working, so I I did a few test runs, and uh, it worked, you know, magnificently. Uh, Really? I didn't do anything special. I did, you know, usual thing, you drag the app into your apps folder or whatever, and 
boom, it just came up. It recognized everything. It knew what model it was. And, uh, you know, it gave you all these great options, uh, including the, the OCR feature. So you didn't have to install separate uh, drivers for each of your devices. It just had it in there and just went, oh, yeah, I got this one. Exactly. It, it recognized both of them. I, it was funny, too, because I, I didn't even think about the fact that I, you know, I have uh, with this iMac, I have my printer uh, hardwired in. And so I didn't even think about the idea that it might be scanning for other devices. I was just looking to see if there was something I could do to configure it to see the, the Fujitsu. Right, right, right. So anyway, the, the bottom line was that I, I did, I don't know, probably half a dozen different kinds of uh, scans, uh, color, black and white. Uh, it, it does duplex, simplex. Uh, it has all kinds of auto features. And I'll be the first one to say right now that I've only been using this now for about a month. And there there's still many features I haven't even tried. But uh, all the things that you would like out of scanning software like uh, auto rotation, that kind of thing, seems to do very well with all of that. And it's, like I said, got other things that I haven't even tried yet. So I I was reading a review of it on another website, and uh, the person doing the review said, well, you know, it's like, okay, but uh, the scanner software from Fujitsu is just the most amazing, awesome, simple, easy-to-use software I've ever used. I'm like, really? Did we we (laughs) use the same app? I always found it, to, I mean, in theory, you could set up a, a specific way you wanted a scan to go. Like when I'm doing, I'm going to do uh, color, single-sided, and I want OCR, and I'm going to put it in this folder. And that's, you know, that's one setting. And then you could do another one where it's like, okay, it's going to be black and white, double-sided. Why don't you do a fast scan, save it as a PDF, whatever. You're supposed to be able to do that. I could never figure that out. I mean, every once in a while I would accidentally get the right piece of software to go, but there were like, there were like 11 separate apps too, right? Yes. Yes. And so that's one thing that is kind of nice about this software. It it is all self-contained. And like you said, you don't have to diddle independently with any drivers or any other files. It, it takes care of itself very well, as far as I could tell. And that's, that's nice in terms of configuring it. I think it can be a little daunting when you first open it up because it has several tabs. And um, in a couple of these, at least on the the higher end version, there are a lot of options. So, you know, you have a lot of pull down menus and everything, but I think that most of them are clearly identified. So once I kind of got the the gist of how they organized it, it really hasn't been hard to operate at all. And uh, everything has pretty much done what I expected to do once I set it. Okay. I wanted to wind one more thing about the ScanSnap software. It it wasn't just that installing it installed all these different pieces of software. It's whenever an update came in, you'd get the down, you'd say, yeah, go ahead and update. You've got an update. And then it would start opening all of these separate updaters. (laughs) You get like five of them would launch and they'd be, they'd be putting discs onto your desktop, you know, disc images, and then they pop up, they'd run and then they'd eject themselves. I mean, they did it as automatically as they could, but it was just, it was just, noisy you know it's just a (laughs) lot of stuff right and to that point i guess uh like i said i've only had this for about a month already uh it has pushed i think two or three updates and there's none of that it's again it's all under the hood when you bring it up there's a small uh a small window that pops up and at the bottom of the window it'll just say hey there's a new update do you want to load it and that's it you click that and you know it goes about its business 
So what, what's the interface like? Do you, do you have any ability to save settings to say, okay, this is a configuration I'm going to want to do for this kind of document. This is another kind of configuration. Yeah, actually I haven't dealt with that yet, but um, they have a, a couple of different uh, methods for selecting profiles. And so uh, what I've been looking at here is how to, how to actually do that. But I believe that, that that is part of this. I just haven't taken advantage of it yet. Okay. I, I didn't also find that I do that many different kinds of things. It's mostly, yeah, I want to, I want to scan in these receipts or these, these documents and I want to shove them over onto my Drobo and I want them to be OCR so that Hazel will take care of them and shove them into a folder. And it's not like I have these needs for all these different kinds of uh, scans. Yeah. And, and so, like I said, I'm, I'm still sorting through it all, but I do think that uh, it's got, you know, a lot of capability as far as if you want to customize for exactly what you're trying to do, especially if you have, you know, if you're, I don't know, professional or you have a lot of workflow going through, you know, you can, you can tailor it uh, quite a bit as far as I can tell. Okay. All right. That's cool. Now, I was looking at the uh, purchase page. Where did I? Uh-oh, I lost it. Here we go. Let me get back <laughs> to the purchase page. So for $40, it does uh, that. You get the free trial. That's great. Uh, flatbed scanning and free updates for one year. So that's for 40 bucks. But if you pay the 90 bucks, that's where you get not just flatbed scanning and document scanning. You get uh, unlimited free updates. So basically a lifetime license, I guess. Uh, right. You can do film and slide scanning and uh, enable automatic document feeders. So with your S1500M, that was, that's got to be a crucial piece, right? That was the other piece of it. And, and frankly, I wasn't quite sure if you know, they were using the right terminology. I was going to give them a call, but since I was going to go for the high end anyway for the OCR, I just decided, well, then it's, it's already there. <laughs> and, and you are able to use the automatic document feeder on the S1500M? Oh, yeah. It works like a charm. Or S1500. Yeah. Okay, good. Okay. Yeah. And on the $90, that's where you get the optical character recognition. And then it says enable advanced features. Yeah. And I, I, when I, you know, just to give you an idea of what they call advanced features, some of the things that you can do is you can control, like if you're saving to a PDF file, how much compression you can, uh, you can uh, tailor it for the image size, the paper size in the PDF file. Uh, you can go to TIFF, JPEG, uh, a lot of other options. And, and it has all kinds of other uh, settings for like, if you're, if you're scanning in color, you have color balance settings, just like you would in like Photoshop or Affinity Photo. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So you can tailor it for like the brightness of RGB. Um, you can set the color space for the scanner if it's available. Uh, like just all kinds of really, I mean, obviously I'm not, not doing that kind of advanced work, but if you had somebody who is probably doing something more for the publishing industry, I could see where, you know, this, this doesn't skimp on those kinds of controls. I really wish I had, uh, I had bought this, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I, one of the things I looked at when I, uh, I bought a, uh, an Epson scanner and I mean, it's fine. The other one was fine. I, I wasn't in love with my scanner like a lot of people were with the uh, uh, with the scan snaps. 
But uh, when I when I got a new scanner, I thought, okay, well, I, I definitely need OCR, and supposedly the the uh, the OCR from Epson is supposed to be okay, and it it sort of does it, but it's a little janky. It, it I mean, it's fine. Uh, and I thought, okay, well, you know, the other scanner came with Abby Fine Reader, and I'll you know that that seemed to work really well. Let me just I'll just go buy a copy of that. Abby Fine Reader is two hundred dollars <laughs> by itself. Yeah. <clears throat> I never bought it. You know, it, it it came as a part of a bundle in one of my previous scan lives. Yeah, yeah. I well, had no idea it was that expensive. Yeah, it's 200 bucks for a single license. So I was just like, oh, come on, <laughs> $200, you know. So I, 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 I do feel okay that I gave away the 1300 uh, the S1300 to somebody in a, in a local user group. And uh, it turns out they ended up giving it to a member of their church group who uses Windows. And so this person is doing a bunch of scanning. They were they were doing some really tedious process before to scan in documents for the church. And this ended up helping them do it a lot more efficiently. And the person was like really happy. So I felt good about it in the end, but I would have rather, yeah. I mean, maybe I'll just buy it now so I don't forget <laughs> when uh, Epson stopped supporting. Oh, and Epson, by the way, came really close to not supporting this brand new uh, scanner I got. <laughs> I got it like in June and, you know, we're, I'm writing to them in September and saying, hey, dude, you know, this is a 32-bit driver. They're like, yeah, you know, I, I think we're going to do it. I don't know. And then I, I mean, it, it was rolling into, I think it was in November when they finally came out with the, the 64-bit driver. It's like, come on, I just bought this. Wow. Yeah. You know, so I, I'll say that, uh, you know, I've given you all the pros. The only The only con that I have sound so far and it's from my point of view it's really a nit but the uh i will say that the scan rate for the view scan is a little bit slower with the same with the same scanner oh Uh, that's interesting it's it's noticeable but to me it's not annoying because it's just not that significant i would say it might be i don't know if i had to estimate 10 or 15 percent slower sometimes only in certain modes um and I think that's just probably because obviously with Fujitsu, they have, you know, more tighter coupling between their hardware and their software. Whereas ViewScan, I think they've had to reverse engineer. So they, they may not be quite as efficient in how they do some of the handling of the data. But, um, you know, I just want to throw that out there. That's the only thing that I found that that was a downside. And to me, anyway, it's just not I mean, I I've scanned a 50 page document and, uh, you know, the difference in time might have been a minute or something. Oh, wow. Okay, so that's not too bad. No. Yeah, you know, that reminds me, I have a little tiny uh, mobile scanner from uh, from ScanSnap that I could test this on. I could uh, download the free trial and see if it works. I feel like giving them money just because they're keeping stuff out of the landfill, right? Oh, yeah. And like I said, uh, you know, if you go to their, their website, uh, they list, I think it's over 150 different devices. and 150? Yeah, 150. And... When I took a look, I, I think, I don't know if it was on their website or elsewhere on the web, but somewhere I found at least a partial list of some of the things they support. And in that list, there are some pretty old pieces of hardware. So they've gone to a lot of trouble to, to try and maintain as, you know, as wide a, uh, a number of uh, devices to support as possible. And you're right, I, I kind of give them credit for that because uh, they've made a business out of it. And it's really valuable if you don't want to, you know, chuck your... Uh, your, your printer or your scanner or whatever. Yeah. You know, I used to always not publicly, but I will, I will officially apologize to everybody who ever whined anywhere near me about an old scanner, not working uh, under my breath behind your back. I mocked you for, come on, just get over it and get a new scanner. 
But, you know, when you look at a perfectly good piece of hardware and you think about it, it just it just seems wrong to throw it away. Uh, well, yeah. And especially in some cases, I mean, I, there was a time a few years ago where I had a, a printer and this printer just it it was just it fit well on my desk and it was exactly what I needed and all. And I ran into a problem where the driver, you know, expired, basically. And uh, there was just no way back then that I could I could even get it to print, let alone scan. Hmm. And and uh, I was really kind of disappointed because it was still in very good condition. I'd had it for, you know, a couple of years. But, uh, you know, I basically had to do what you did. I found a good home for it. And then I went out and, you know, went to Best Buy or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's we got to get away from this disposable hardware. You know, that's a, the, the landfills. Uh, I've heard they're full enough already. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right about that. Yeah. Well, before we close out, uh, the person who has been yelling into their phone the whole time we've been talking is Alistair Jenks, because in 2012, seven years ago, he did do a review of ViewScan from Hamrick Software. So uh, I uh, hope that made him laugh that I did finally uh, check it out before we got out of here. By the way, Hamrick is spelled H-A-M-R-I-C-K. Well, Ron, I appreciate you coming on and tell us about this. This is awesome. Um, I'm Like I said, I might buy it and just resurrect my old little scanner and see how it works. Well, if you do, let me know how it goes. I sure will. If uh, people wanted to contact you, you got any kind of, I don't know, Twitter handle or any way to, to chat with you? Or? Uh, they could just email me, old, old school, R-W-B-U-R-C-H at, I'm sorry, R-W-B-U-R-C-H 22 at gmail.com. All right. Thanks a lot, Ron. I appreciate you coming on and telling the story again. You bet. I thought that was really fun. I enjoyed uh, talking to Ron. We talked to Ron every Friday night, but getting him on the show again was super fun. I should have him do more of those with me. One of the coolest things about being a Mac owner is how long your computer will remain useful. I hear stories about people using, I mean, just this last week, about somebody using a Core 2 Duo machine. That thing's 12 years old. I'm not a big fan of recommending uh, letting a you know letting a Mac that's not able to run a currently supported operating system get on the internet, but you know luckily Apple supports machines pretty far down pretty far back. As of right now, macOS High Sierra is still supported with security updates, and you can run High Sierra on Macs back to 2009 or 2010, depending on you know which model family. That means a machine a decade old is still a great machine with a current operating system or, you know, a supported operating system. Now, I bring this all up because as demands on our machines increase, we need ways to limit the power required to keep them running well. Sure, we can add more RAM and we can throw in an SSD and dramatically increase the speed, but a demanding app can burn through an aging battery pretty quickly. Even if you have a newer machine, misbehaving apps can burn through a new battery and chew up your processors, you know, bringing your system to a crawl. I'll pick on Chrome here for a moment. I haven't independently verified this by personal testing, but Chrome is known to have memory leaks and not work as efficiently on Macs as Safari, which is tailored for Apple-specific hardware. A common answer to my uh, to questions regarding battery drain on tech support shows is, are you using Chrome? Now, I use Chrome for the live show, and it is the single biggest hog of, uh, of my processors, but it is broadcasting video, so I usually forgive it, but it's not a light app. Anyway, let's say your apps aren't misbehaving and your hardware is brand spanking new. There can be times when you'd like to limit an app or a specific process from taking too much CPU because you're doing something else demanding, like recording or broadcasting video. 
Now, I'm a huge fan of metrics, as you may have already figured out, and there's nothing more fun than looking at all the graphs and numbers in the menu bar app, iStat Menus. You can watch your CPU get chewed up to your heart's content, but there's nothing you can actually do about it from within iStat Menus. The information is actionable, but you have to go to another app to take action. AppTamer from St. Clair Software gives you metrics on CPU usage, but it also gives you practical actions you can take to control your apps, that is, to tame them. AppTamer is a menu bar app and it costs $15. There's a free 15-day trial of AppTamer at stclairsoft.com. On first run of AppTamer, like many apps nowadays, it's going to ask you to install a helper app in order to function. By default, AppTamer shows you an icon in the menu bar and the current CPU uh, percentage of total CPU usage. When you select the icon, the app flips down, pinned in place. You can tear it off to make it a standalone app and even set it to hover above other apps using the preferences. The top of the app shows you a graph of your CPU usage as a function of time. I was surprised to see an option on my new Mac that said, because your Mac has more than four processor cores, the CPU graph will show more detail when setting to a logarithmic scale. As much as I really enjoy annoying David Roth with mathematics, even today on his birthday, rather than going through a full explanation of what logarithms are, let's just say that using a log scale is helpful if you have small values and large values you need to plot on the same graph. If you don't have an eight-core system, you won't have to worry your pretty little head about this, David. Below the graph is a list of all processes currently using CPU and sorted by that CPU usage. It's a little hard to figure out whether it's sorted by the instantaneous percentage or the average percentage usage because both are displayed, but I've seen the top apps, apps have one of the others as the top value. Anyway, at the bottom of the listing is a button to toggle to see all processes, but that can get pretty long and it doesn't actually provide you with more actionable information. The magic of AppTamer is that it lets you limit how much CPU you want to allow each app to use. For example, how often have you realized that your machine is slow to a crawl because Spotlight is decided to index? With AppTamer, you can limit that usage to, say, less than 20%. AppTamer comes pre-configured to automatically reduce the CPU and battery usage of Safari, Firefox, Google Chrome, Spotlight, Time Machine, Photoshop, Illustrator, Word, and more. Apparently, these are the big offenders. To add an app to manage processes, simply select it in your list of running applications. You'll get a window with detailed controls. The first set of controls tells AppTamer what to do when an app is not in front. You can choose to stop the app completely, which would be great for Chrome when you're not actively using it, or you can choose to slow it down if it's using more than a specified percentage of CPU. You get a little slider, or you can type in a value for that percentage. You can make it like 37%, I guess, if you wanted to. The third checkbox allows you to only stop or slow the app when it's hidden. Back to our Chrome example, if you're actually using Chrome to do something and it's in the foreground, you definitely don't want it slowed down. The second set of options tells AppTamer what to do when an app is idle. You can have the app hidden after a specified number of minutes, or AppTamer can quit the app after so many minutes. Both of these sliders go from 1 to 120 minutes. I can see hiding an app. In fact, I may do that with every app I have running because I launch so many apps sometimes I get to where I can't even find my desktop. Quitting an app after a while is something I may not choose, but perhaps you have a use case for it. AppTamer will ask for permission to send you notifications, and as soon as you say yes, you will regret it. But don't judge it just yet. 
I say you'll regret it because invariably some app you're actually using to be productive will trigger a pop down from the app tamer menu bar app, alerting you to the fact that it's chewing up more than 20% of your CPU. The good news is that one of the options available right from that menu is don't warn about followed by the name of the process. I'm allowing macOS Catalina in theory to download my 600 gigabyte iCloud photo library right now. So AppTamer is warning me that Photo Library D has been using more than its fair share of CPU. The alert asked me what I'd like to do about it. I can choose to let it continue. I can limit its CPU usage, or I can choose Don't Warn About Photo Library D. I used that option quite a bit at the beginning of my AppTamer usage, and now even AppTamer is tamed. Finally, on that same pop-down menu is the option to change notification settings overall. When I do the live show, I run an awful lot of applications and every single one of them is begging for more CPU. Chrome is capturing video from my webcam. Audio Hijack is capturing my microphone. Loopback is routing that audio to virtual sources. Hindenburg is recording my mic and pulling in audio files. NDI is sending video of Hindenburg over the local network to Steve on Mimo Live. And of course, I'm also chatting with the live audience in Discord where I'm piping in the audio of my mic and Hindenburg for playback. <sighs> Anyway, can you even imagine what a fit AppTamer would have during the, the live show? But not to worry, AppTamer comes with an on-off toggle. If you choose to turn it off, you then enter the number of minutes you want it to be off. I love that because I could achieve the same thing if I just quit the app, but I might forget to turn it back on. When AppTamer is off, it's not really off, it still runs the graph and it still records the CPU usage, but a much lower sample rate and it doesn't send any notifications. I really wish I had remembered to turn it off before Steve and I set up for the live show tonight. We couldn't figure out why my video was stuttering and way behind and, you know, all the problems I had with that. It was because I had AppTamer set to, to slow Chrome down if it was using more than 2% of my processes. So if I'd remembered to turn it off, that would have been a good thing. There's a couple of things I want to draw your attention to in the preferences for AppTamer. I mentioned up front that you can see the CPU usage next to the AppTamer icon, and I really like that. But if you don't, you can turn that off. You can also choose to have AppTamer act as a menu bar app or as a regular app, you know, visible in the dock and the app switcher, or you can actually have it be both. Because one of the main problems AppTamer is designed to solve is saving your battery, and preferences they allow you to disable stopping and slowing of apps if you're plugged into power. There's also a setting to change when you'll get notified of a problematic app. By default, if an app exceeds 95% of CPU for longer than 30 seconds, you will be warned, but you can change that time and that percentage over in the preferences. I mentioned the refresh rate of the statistics slows down if you've turned AppTamer off temporarily. You also have granular control over the update rate inside settings. If you're a dark mode fan, you can enable that in preferences as well. The bottom line is that if you want to maximize battery life on a laptop or control which apps are using your CPU so your important apps get first priority, AppTamer is an excellent choice. It's beautifully designed, it's modestly priced, and it does what it says on the tin. That's going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions. And in fact, send in reviews. We want to have a good Christmas show. We've got uh, one for sure already from Frank. We've got that in the can. And we've got, uh, I think I've tricked Dorothy into doing something with me. And I think um, I've got another person who says they think they can get something done. It would be great to have a bunch of content for the week of Christmas. Because you know what? A lot of people in their cars, they're traveling, they're flying, they need, uh, need some entertainment. And the 
show must go on. So if you can do that by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com, that would be awesome. If you want to follow me on Twitter, try at podfeet. And anything good, everything good, everything good starts with podfeet.com. Podfeet.com slash Patreon. Become a patron of the arts. If you want to join our Facebook group, podfeet.com slash Facebook. If you want to have some fun in Slack, podfeet.com slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time. Join the friendly and enthusiastic Lucilla Castaways. It was fun having Kiwis with us since it was a Saturday night this week. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.